Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This morning I want to speak to you just for a few minutes today on the topic, Why Do So Many Miss It? Why do so many miss it? Let's start reading in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Father God, thank you for this chapter, this wonderful part of your word. I pray today you just guide us as we spend a few minutes looking at it. Speak to us. Lord, help us to apply it to our lives. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. Forgive me for anything that would uh, prohibit my preaching today. Uh, Help me to say what I should. And may I be as bold as you would have me to be. And uh, help me, Lord, to say nothing I ought not. Uh, Just uh, make this your time. Be our teacher. And when we leave here today, I pray that all of us understand this passage and uh, especially how it applies to us and uh, can say uh, that it's true of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me make just a couple statements to you. Millions today need to be saved. Would you agree with that statement? And yet millions today miss out on salvation. Would you agree with that statement? Far more are lost than are saved. Would you agree with that statement? Far more will be in hell than in heaven. Would you agree with that statement? Does it bother you? It ought to bother us. 
Jesus made it clear when he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. We think about this, or at least I think about this, and I cannot help but ask, why? What, what is the problem? Why do so many miss? Why do so many miss out on heaven? And, of course, one answer would be what Paul's describing here. One answer would be that people get tripped up the same way that the Jews, of whom he's speaking primarily here in this passage, the same way they tripped up. They go about trying to come up with their own plan of salvation and ignore God's. Romans chapter 10, verse 3. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. It's the obvious answer. But I wonder this morning, does there... Is there anything here that would help us to know how one gets off the broad way and onto the narrow way? How does one avoid missing? How does one make sure, ensure he or she will be entering through the narrow gate rather than following the hordes down that broad path to hell? Well, I think this passage, which is just like last week's message in chapter 9, this chapter is primarily talking about God's dealings with Israel, but we're going to make application from it to us. And I think it contains a wonderfully clear explanation of what they needed to do and what we need to do in order to ensure that we are saved, that we don't miss out. And it's really very simple. Here's the outline. You ready? You might want to write this down. This is profound. Charlie, you might want to write this down. First of all, you've got to hear it. Secondly, you've got to believe it. And thirdly, you've got to say it. Those are the three things. That's what he talks about. Let's look at him. Number one, you've got to hear it. Look at verse number 14. Verse number 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they haven't all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, you've got to hear it. Now, I realize I jumped past some really important stuff, and we will get back to that. And it might seem to some that I'm taking this out of order, but if you read Paul's argument, you realize I'm not. This really is the first thing that he says. Notice what he says here. He says you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and we'll get back to those in just a moment. But then he says, how can you believe if you have not first heard? And so even the way he's, he's written this here, it looks like I'm going out of order. I really am following his order by starting with the hearing part. Verse number 14 makes the order of things quite clear. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? They can't call unless they first believe. And they can't believe unless they first hear. And so the order is hear it, believe it, then say it. And in that first part, this part, hearing, Hear it. I think we see right away that Paul believes the gospel, the message, the good news of Jesus Christ is the absolute central thing. Central to this matter of salvation. Notice what he says in verse number 6. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now, that seems like a hard passage right there. And I confess that as I come across that in my Bible reading from time to time, I always scratch my head a little bit. What is he trying to say there? But let me paraphrase. It's really actually quite simple. He's saying you don't have to search high and low. 
You don't have to look high into heaven to try to find the truth. You don't have to look into the depths of hell to find the truth. You don't have to look high and low. You have it. It's right here. It's right here. The word of faith which we preach. That's what he was saying to them. And that's what he's saying to us. Uh, they had the truth. And we have the truth. And nothing else is needed. And then he sums it all up in verse number 17 when he says, Then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Think about all the truth that's crammed into that one simple verse. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We, we could spend uh, sermon after sermon on that. But let me just draw a couple points out of it. If you just think about that. Paul's talking there, first of all, about the importance of the word, isn't he? The word of God is important. And you know, brothers and sisters, every time we look at this book, every time you see it sitting on your coffee table at home, every time you pick it up, you ought to praise God for this book. It's an astonishing thing that we have the Bible, an amazing gift that we have this revelation of God. It's a book like no other. It is the very Word of God. It's not just another volume in the Library of Congress like all the other millions of books that are there. This one is unique. There is no other like it anywhere on the face of the earth. The Bible, the Word of God, not authored by men, breathed into life by God. Second Timothy chapter 3 says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. Anothen. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every work. Second Peter chapter 1, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural, amazing, wonderful book, and we ought to thank God for it. The centrality, the importance... Of the Word of God. I know that there might be some, there are many, and there might even be some in this room, who would question that a book could be such an amazing thing. And you'd look at it and you say, it looks like any other book to me. It's got pages and it's got words and it just looks like a book. But uh, this, this book is different. It's an amazingly old book. Parts of it are thousands of years old. The very newest part of it is close to 2,000 years old. The book of Revelation. It's a really a library of 66 separate books written by some 40 different authors, three different languages from multiple parts of the world. And yet it is one book with one message. We ought to thank God for it. The centrality of the word is wonderful. And if you're still one who questions, if you're still one who just can't quite get your brain around how important this book is, I would, I would challenge you. I would challenge you to read one of the legion of books that has been written by people who thought like that. There's been all kinds of people who have said, you know what, I'm sick to death of people telling me this Bible is the inspired word of God and it's somehow special. I'm going to disprove it. And they set out to do so. And then they write a book. But, of course, the book is exactly the opposite. Because once they dig into it, they come to find out this book is alive. This book is real. This book is the Word of God. Read Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. He was one who set out to disprove. Ended up getting saved by the effort and wrote a book. Read uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Or any of Josh McDowell's books. Another one who set out to scientifically disprove in every way possible the reality of Christ and the reality of the Word of God. And ended up getting saved. Read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Any of those. There's all kinds of them. And you will come away as they did. Believing that this book is amazing. 
All of those say the same thing. So the importance of the word. Another thing we might see here is the importance of preaching. And I'm getting that from verse number 14, really. But uh, it's another thing that he mentions here, the importance of preaching. You know, in a day when our churches are constantly trying to come up with new ways to fill pews and new ways to be somehow more uh, uh, relevant, that's a word they like to use. I think it's a good reminder to us that the, God, that the method God has specifically chosen and blessed is the preaching of the Word of God. It's not old-fashioned. It's God's chosen way. All throughout Scripture we're told this. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. And so preaching the word is God's chosen method of reaching the world. We must never move off that central approach. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come. And it's here, by the way, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. God has blessed this church in many ways and and, and for all kinds of reasons, I'm sure. But I believe one of them is because we have stuck with the centrality of preaching the word. And all we need to continue to do that. So the importance of preaching. And then there's a third thing here that I think I see in this is the importance of hearing. Remember, you've got to hear it. The importance of hearing and obeying the word that is preached. Paul is not talking here about hearing in a way that is passive. He's talking about active listening. He's talking about uh, hearing and listening so as to effect change. I like to listen to sermons. I like to preach sermons too. But I also like to listen to sermons. I listen to sermons when I'm riding down the road in my car. I listen to sermons when I'm mowing in my lawn on my tractor. I haven't ridden my bicycle much this year, but when I did, where's, where's Carla at? When I did, I, uh, I like to listen to sermons when I was going down the road on that. I like to listen to sermons. And one day I was listening to one by Alistair Begg, and he was preaching from the passage in Acts where Paul was preaching the gospel to King Agrippa. And you remember that particular passage? It's the passage where Agrippa was almost convinced. He said, almost. Paul, almost. You convinced me. But then we read this, after the whole sermon is over, and I guess the invitation is given, we read this. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them, and when they had gone aside, they talked amongst themselves. And I would have never thought anything of that. But Alistair, in this sermon that I was listening to, he says, you know what that is? He said, that is the way most people listen to sermons. He said, they sit in church, and they listen to it, and the invitation is given, and then they turn and look to each other, and they say, I wonder when the Browns are on today. Or I wonder what's going on this afternoon. Or what's going on at Cracker Barrel today? And they get up and they go about their business without absolutely any effect whatsoever. And I never thought about it that way. But I think he might have a point. They move on as if the preaching of the word had not even happened. They are unchanged by it. And it makes me wonder. It ought to make us all wonder. How many people really give thought to the way they hear preaching? The way they listen to the word of God. If it's the word of God. Is it the word of God? Oh, my, that was terrible. Is it the Word of God? Then it ought to. uh, It ought to affect the way we we hear and and listen to it. 
If it's the Word of God, and if God calls and sends preachers to preach it, then I'm thinking He expects a different way of listening than that practiced by Agrippa. Let me give you a couple thoughts. How should I listen to a sermon? You might be asking. Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Number one, prayerfully. I wonder how many prayed before the sermon this morning. How many of you were getting up this morning and prayed about the sermon and how it would affect you? I wonder how many asked God's help before listening. Help me hear this morning, Lord. We ought to pray that. We ought to listen to sermons prayerfully. We ought to pray for ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to receive his truth. One man said, for a meaningful preaching event, you need an expectant praying preacher, but you also need an expectant praying congregation. Prayerfully. Number two, we need to, we need to listen expectantly. Do you expect to hear something important when you listen to the preaching of the Word? If it is God's Word, and is it God's Word? Oh, that's terrible. What's the matter with you guys? Is it God's Word? Then we should expect big things from it. A preacher one time confided in John R. Rice. John R. Rice is with the Lord now. He was a preacher some years back. But he confided in John R. Rice that he was discouraged that he didn't seem to get any results when he would preach. And John R. Rice looked at him and says, Well, you don't expect people to respond every time you preach, do you? And the guy said, Well, no, I guess not. And John R. Rice smiled and said, Well, that's your problem. Do you expect the Word of God to speak to you? Do you listen expectantly every time? I wasn't asking for that that time. (laughs) Number three, we should listen humbly. Humbly. Do you listen confessing that you need the Word of God? Do you do that? Do you understand that you're a broken, messed up human being, and you desperately need what's in this book? We all do. I'm including myself in all of this. Remember Paul's confession in chapter 7. He said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Can you? Do you confess you need it? You need the Word of God. We need to, we need to listen humbly. We need to listen obediently. And, and, you know, this one, I guess, is where the rubber meets the road. If you don't obey it, what has been accomplished in you by hearing it? The Word of God. And is this the Word of God? Okay, just, just checking. The Word of God is the only true change agent in the world. The only one. This can fix everything about you about your loved ones, about this world, everything. But only if we go from hearing to obeying. And then one last thought. We need to listen determinedly. Determinedly. We need to decide to hear it. We need to decide to listen. We need to decide to acknowledge our need. We need to determine to obey it and let it change us. Well, I'll get off that. That was kind of a digression, but we'll get off it. you got to hear it. That was the first part. That's the first part. You've got to hear it. Number two, you've got to believe it. Look at verses 9 and 10. You've got to believe it. Paul makes it crystal clear here that believing is a key component of salvation. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you've got to hear it, but hearing is not enough. you also got to believe it. That's a funny word, isn't it? Believe it. It's one of those words we use all kinds of different ways. It's kind of like the word love. Have you ever noticed we use the word love in all kinds of different ways? I love my wife. I love the Cleveland Browns. Do those two things mean the same? And if you don't love the Cleveland Browns, you're in the wrong church. How about, how about I love the Lord? Don't we say that? I love the Lord. 
I also happen to love Briar's mint chocolate chip ice cream. Those two things mean the same. Same word. I love my kids. I love my grandchild. I also love fall. It's my favorite time of the year. It's a funny word, isn't it? We use it all kinds of different ways. You know, I think believe is another word like that. What does it mean when we say you've got to believe it? After all, people use believe all kinds of ways. I believe two plus two equals four. My belief is based on fact. The laws of mathematics. I believe it might rain this afternoon. Based on something slightly less scientific. I believe that, and insert whatever front-running politician's name you want to put here, is telling the truth. Based on fantasy. There's all kinds of different things. All different ways that we believe, or use the word believe. Paul says, with the heart one believes under righteousness. You've got to believe it. What does it mean? Someone will say, I believe in God. And that's all that's required, is it? Another might say, more specifically, that he or she believes in Jesus. Is that better? And is that all that's required? See, we're told all throughout Scripture and to a large degree here in Romans, this is one of Paul's main points. Maybe it is his main point. That belief, faith, is what justifies us. It's what saves us. His key verses in chapter 1 are all about faith and belief. Maybe I haven't mentioned the key verses enough. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. There it is. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There it is. Belief is what saves us. The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. There it is. You've got to believe it. That much is clear. But let's see what it means to believe. Let's make sure that's clear too because you know it's possible to believe and go straight to hell. There is a belief that saves. There is also one that will send you straight to hell. James said, you believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They trembled because they were lost. They trembled because they knew they were doomed. They trembled because they knew they were undone. They believe, but it's not a saving belief. So there is a type of belief that will send you to heaven. And there is a type of belief that will send you to hell. The belief that saves is more than a mere mental assent. It's something completely different. It's more than simply believing that somewhere in history a man named Jesus walked on the face of this earth and went about doing good. It's more than believing simple facts and truths about the historical Jesus. In order to be saved, you have to go beyond that to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did. You cannot believe like Thomas Jefferson believed and go to heaven. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote his own Bible. You still buy him today, the Jefferson Bible, in which he took out everything supernatural, everything miraculous. The only part about Jesus he believed was the history and the ethics. He believed in his words, his sayings, his what, his wisdom. But he rejected everything else. Paul makes it very, very clear here what we have to believe. Look what he said. He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. John agreed with Paul. He said, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That God has raised him from the dead. That's what you've got to believe. 
That's what you've got to believe. Not just the humanly understandable parts of the story. Not just the historical facts. The supernatural, the spiritual, the impossible to believe parts. That's what you've got to believe if you're going to be saved. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe Jesus is the Son? I, I looked across my kitchen table one day at a friend of mine. We were having a conversation. I've since lost track with this fellow. I don't know where he's at now, but we had been discussing Christ and his claims. And my friend was a flaming liberal, and he was throwing out all kinds of liberal gibberish to me. And finally, I decided to just cut to the chase, and I said, listen, do you believe that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God? And he looked at me with a look that I can only describe as pity and said, well, of course not. Of course not. See, he was too scientific for that. He's too worldly for that. He was too logical for that. To get his mind around something as otherworldly as Jesus being the Son of God. And so what about you? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe Jesus was born of a virgin? Do you believe that Jesus uh, lived a sinful life? Sinless life. Sinless life. (laughs) Do you believe... That he had the power to heal the sick, the blind, the lame, and the lepers. Do you believe that he could make a new arm for a man whose arm was withered? He could make new eyes for a man who was born blind. Do you believe that Jesus could raise his friend Lazarus from the decay and corruption of four days of death? Do you believe that when Jesus had hung on the cross, paying the price for your sin and mine, and knowing it was finished, he could simply decide to die? I love that miracle of the Lord. I think that's one that's just so overlooked. Nobody ever talks about it. Only person in all of history who could just say, okay, it's time to die and die. He did. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And he did. You believe it? Do you believe that after three days lying dead in the ground, he arose bodily, physically, miraculously from the dead? you got to believe it. Do you? Do you believe that 40 days after his resurrection, he led his disciples to a place where before their amazed eyes, he ascended bodily into heaven? Astonishing. You might say, I believe in God. You might even say, I believe in Jesus. That's all well and good. But do you believe those things? Because I believe that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you've got to believe that God has raised him from the dead. It's not just simple mental assent to historical fact. It's a heart thing. It's a recognition that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That he is who he said he was. That he did what he said he did. Do you believe that. And if not, I would ask you, what does that say about you, since Paul plainly listed as a requirement of salvation? If you've got to believe it and you can't honestly say you believe it, what does that say about the condition of your soul? So you've got to hear it, you've got to believe it. One last thought, and I'll be quick as I can. You've got to say it. You've got to say it. Look again at verse number 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. He didn't just say you've got to believe it there, did he? There's that interesting part there about the mouth. Interesting part about confessing with the mouth. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, for with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you've got to hear it, you've got to believe it, and then there's this part, you've got to say it. You've got to say it. Now, there are a couple ways we might look at this. We, we might interpret that to mean that public confession of Christ is vital. In other words, you can't be saved unless you publicly confess Christ. 
That's one way we might look at it. And there, there's, there's places where we might arrive at that, that kind of a conclusion from Scripture. The very first sermon that was ever preached after the church was formed on Pentecost was by Peter. And Peter gave an invitation at the end. And we read that this happened. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism was and is a very public confession of faith. Basically, it was the same thing that's being described here by Paul. And so Peter was saying something quite similar, wasn't he? He was saying you need to repent. In other words, you've got to believe it personally. And he was saying, you've got to be baptized. You've got to say it publicly. So we might see the same thing there. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in, is in heaven. Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul told Timothy, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So we could conclude from some of those passages, I think, that public confession is necessary in order to be saved. If you don't say it out loud before men, you can't be saved. And even if those statements go too far, and I think they do, I don't think that's what they're saying. We have to conclude that saying it is vital in some way, right? It clearly plays a role. It can't go quite that far, but it clearly plays a role. And so if you haven't publicly confessed Christ, then by any measure one can think to apply, your faith is suspect. And here's what we have to be careful of. We have to guard against making public confession at work. It's not a work. We're not saved by works. And if we look down a little bit further, we see, once again, Paul hammers this over and over. Salvation is all of grace. Work has nothing to do with it. Look at chapter 11, verse number 6. He makes it very, very plain. If there's anything even remotely like a work, then grace is out of the picture. It's all of grace. And to say that you must say something in order to be saved, it's the same thing as saying you must do something in order to be saved. That can't be. So that's not what he's saying here. He doesn't mean you must say it out loud in order to be saved. That would contradict everything he's taught in this book up to this point. There's another way to interpret this idea that you've got to say it. And that is, we can interpret it to mean that internal regeneration will bring external verification. In other words, the public confession is not a requirement. It's an evidence. It's not a cause. It's an effect. You know, I don't think there's any such thing in the Bible as a secret disciple. Can you think of a secret disciple in the Bible? Someone who is unknown? Someone might say, ah, what about Joseph of Arimathea? And Joseph of Arimathea does say this, doesn't it? It says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly... For fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. You say, see there, that's a secret disciple. You can be a disciple and never speak up. You can be a secret. But look what he did. He went to Pilate and identified himself with the Savior who Pilate had just condemned to the cross. He might have started out secret, but it came out, didn't it? In a very public way. And if you go to Israel today, and you go to Jerusalem today, you can stand in the garden tomb, which some believe is Joseph's tomb. So for thousands of years, his confession has been pretty public. Shakespeare said it well in 1596 in his Merchant of Venice. He said, well, old man, I will tell you news of your son. Give me your blessing. Truth will come to light. Murder cannot be hid long. A man's son may, but at the length, truth will out. At the length, truth will out. A true Christian cannot deny the Savior. 
A true Christian will confess Him. I believe God will give you opportunities to share your faith. I believe God will give you opportunities to speak up and testify to Christ Jesus. Scripture teaches us to be ready for just those sorts of things. First Peter chapter 3, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I doubt there's a one in this room who names the name of Christ, whose life has changed in any way, shape, or form, who someone hasn't asked, who haven't had some opportunity. Good night every time you go to a restaurant. You have the opportunity to bow your head and pray and publicly confess Christ. You've had such opportunities. Did you do it? Did you speak up for him? You see, whichever way we interpret this verse, and this is a powerful verse. We can't deny this verse is there. It says exactly what it says. No matter how we interpret it, the same reality comes through. The redeemed of the Lord say so. You've got to hear it. And you've got to believe it. And you've got to say it. Why do so many miss out on heaven? Why will there be so many more in hell than in heaven? Some will be there because they didn't hear it. They didn't listen. And you've got to hear it. Some will be there because they didn't believe it when they did. And you have to believe it. Some will be there because they would not confess it. You've got to say it. So what about you? I can, close with, I can conclude with this thought. Have you heard? Do you believe? Will you say it?